Welcome to Leading the Next Generation with Tim Elmore. I am your co-host, Andrew McPeak, and our mission here at Growing Leaders is to empower the emerging generations with skills to lead in real life. And Tim, today we got an important topic. I think they're probably, I feel like they're always important, but I think today is especially important. Well, if, if, if people would disagree, it's, it's not important. We definitely would all agree it's ubiquitous today. Um, yes. I, I feel like we constantly talk about anxiety and students, but everybody always says, yeah, but it's still relevant. I'm still wrestling with my students or my kids or my athletes, and they're struggling with this issue. Yeah. Well, to set it up, I know you actually had an experience um, right right here in yeah. Atlanta um, that is maybe just a symptom of this issue that we're going to talk about today. Yeah. So would you tell that story? Absolutely, yeah. So a few weeks ago, it was more in the middle of the quarantine and so forth, um, I was in a uh, the groceries, Publix grocery store parking lot just north of Atlanta, and I saw some um, students, young adults, interacting. I was about two cars down, so I could hear them talking, and their conversation fascinated me. In fact, I don't think I would have believed it had I not heard it with my own ears. So these are four university students talking about how they're feeling anxious. You know, their school year had been cut short, at least in person. Uh, for yeah. three of them, no graduation ceremony in person. So it's just a lot of, you know, uncertain, ambiguous, uh, volatile experiences they were having. Absolutely. So they were out in the parking lot just talking about how anxious they were. And one of the young ladies said, maybe we need to get our minds off our own problems. And that, of course, perked me up because <laughs> I actually believe that. Uh, not just for them, but for me as well. So there was a pause because it sounded like their mother had just joined the conversation. But this young lady went on and she said, I'm going to look for the next person I see in this parking lot who looks like they need help and I'm going to help them. And I thought, huh. oh my gosh, what a case study I'm about to watch. And so sure enough, um, it, it, it's, what's really cool is she did see some, um, some older people that were feeling, she could just tell they were kind of needing some help. A lot of it was just being antsy with her mask and going into a crowded store. But yeah. um, I love the fact that in essence, this young woman was saying, I think the secret to beating my own anxiety is to get busy helping other people. Yeah. Now, I realize this is not a, you know, we're not claiming this is a comprehensive remedy for all anxiety or mental health yeah. issues. Clearly, mm -hmm. there's a place for counseling and medication sometimes. But I actually think at the root of our problems sometimes, let me just speak for me, sometimes my problem as a grown man adult is that I've gotten so consumed with me uh, and what I'm facing right now, watching the news for hours a day maybe and just getting so caught up in the anxiousness of the moment that um, I, I need to get my focus off myself. Not denial, but just developing a, a larger scale worldview. I would love you to volley back on that because I, I think you've got an, an angle on this too, but I, I just think I'm, I'm better when I do this. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's something that I feel like I started discovering in high school and it was um, uh, a path that actually led me to what I'm doing now with you yeah. at Growing Leaders um, because there was, there was just a, a realization, I think, as I was going along that for those of my friends who seemed obsessed with what people think about me, um, my social media profile, my yeah. my life, am I you know where am I sitting in the lunchroom or whatever else? They actually seemed to be dealing with stress, anxiety, other lots of other 
you know, tertiary issues as well yeah. as a result of that. And um, I remember some of my friends in high school stayed home during the summer. And in my summers, I, I was a part of, you know, um, groups that did service projects. Yeah. And I got to travel yeah. other places and learn new things and grow myself as a leader. And I think that our, our two sort of diverging paths helped me realize that as I'm focused on, you know, improving the world... I suddenly find myself actually finding my own mental health has improved yeah, as well. Yeah, that's exactly what we're talking about. And it's, it's simple and yet terribly profound. I remember you mentioned your teenage years and your college years. My own son made this discovery as a young man. Um, he had his own battle with depressive moods and anxiety. And yet I remember him telling me one day, late in his high school years, I have much better days, Dad, when I lose myself in using my gifts to serve other people. And again, it's... It sounds like a Hallmark card, but, but it's really true. Uh, Andrew, you and I have talked about Greta Thunberg uh, as another yeah. example. And, and even though we know she's a very controversial young teenager uh, dealing with uh, climate control, climate, uh, climate change, mm-hmm. her, her, she made this acknowledgement that she struggled with depression in the past. And she said, yeah. I think getting involved in this cause has actually helped me beat depression. So there's a, yeah. there's a thread, there's a ribbon here of commonality that I want us to dig into the science and then maybe get really practical with listeners today on how do we do this in our own lives and with our students around us. Absolutely, because as the title of this podcast suggests, not only is this a, a really good insight, I think it also may be the secret that a lot of our teens that we're leading today yeah. are missing. Yes. Um, that could that could actually, and, and like you said, some of them may need medication, therapy, other things like that. But I think for for probably the vast majority of them, if they're dealing with some form of stress, it's it's probably going to be at least helped yeah. uh, utilizing this secret. No, so, no doubt about uh, it. You mentioned research. I'd yeah. love for you to dig into that a little bit. Yeah, so I've been reading some stuff recently that's really been fascinating, and it totally makes sense. I just didn't know it until now. Um, yeah. So researchers have been revising the traditional view of psychological trauma, uh, which emerged after World War I. We talked about shell shock with those soldiers that came back from World War yeah. I, and then World War II, and then we really began to hear about it after the Vietnam War. We called it post-Vietnam syndrome. But it was soldiers, men and women, who went through some very traumatic uh, times, obviously, during the war with bullets and bombs going off, and they came back with what we now call PTSD, post-traumatic yes. stress disorder. Everybody's familiar with that term, okay? In fact, we're, off, we're probably throwing around way too much just in a flippant sort I of way. I think we might be, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the disorder was quite real and one more manifestation of, of, of negativity effect. But since the 1990s, Andrew, psychologists have collated studies and discovered that most people who've endured trauma or stressful events don't get PTSD. In fact, four out of five, in fact, become better and stronger and kinder, have greater perspective on life. So one out of five get PTSD, and of course we turn that into a huge conversation, but four out of five, it was discovered, wait a minute, they're not going through PTSD, how did they make it? So there are two terms now, I wanna make sure our listeners are clear on this. PTSD is post-traumatic stress disorder, when we have triggers and we are damaged from it, yeah. okay? PTG, or what they're calling post-traumatic growth, happens when we recover with a better narrative after the trauma. 
Yeah. And of course, that's what every parent, every teacher, every coach, every employer, uh, every youth worker wants their students to get. So the big question is, how do we get to PTG instead of PTSD? So yeah, um, well, it's the research is so fascinating though that the PTG is what's happening the majority of the time, yeah, right? Yeah. And it speaks to the trend that you and I have talked about on this podcast so many times. We've read about it so much, which is all of these parents and adults who are trying to protect their kids from going through significant, difficult, even possibly traumatic experiences because they fear PTSD when actually come to find out the research is saying, actually, when you go through a traumatic event, you're far more likely to grow and improve, especially in your personal narrative on the other side of it. It's a little bit flipping our expectations of what might happen on its head. That's really true. So um, what you just said is very profound. We're much more likely to have a, a, a better perspective after going through tough times. Haven't we all said, you know, trials and tribulations make us stronger. Yeah. What doesn't make you, mm-hmm. you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But um, what I want to talk to you about today is how do we guide that student into that right narrative? I don't think we need to be a god. We need to be a guide. But mm-hmm. um, how do we more ensure that they have embraced and they possess this this right narrative? So, um, so Andrew John Turney. Uh, wrote a book recently called The Power of Bad. And he talks about bad stuff in this book. It's kind of funny. He just (laughs) bluntly calls it the power of bad. But here's what he tells us that I'd love for you to volley back on. Um, The growth that people experience in PTG doesn't come from the trauma, but from the way a person responds to the trauma, okay? So these people suppress Hmm. their negativity bias with an array of defenses that are available to any one of us. Okay? Mm. They choose to become kinder, stronger, and more mindful of the joys in life that, they, that they've got. And while a negative experience that we have triggers a stronger immediate emotional reaction than a positive one, negative emotions actually fade faster than positive ones do in most people. Isn't that interesting? So you have a bad yeah. experience, you're gonna be triggered way more strong. Our negative emotions are actually stronger than our positive ones. And I think in most people I know, outside of my mother, who was very joyful. Um, <laughs> Couldn't be stopped. <laughs> that's right. right. She, could not, she just loved to laugh and just have fun. Um, we, we react negatively stronger, but we recover from them more often uh, along the way. So I, I mm. think we need to learn from this. So um, I love that. Yeah. I love that. And there's so many people down through history that you could think of like, oh, this perfectly explains, you know. Yeah. I'm thinking of... A Nelson Mandela who was put in prison for decades, you know, and it's like, how does he come out with the perspective yeah. of we're going to make the world a better place? Well, it's because he went through a traumatic experience and responded to it yes. well, yeah. which led him to become uh, a different person on the other side yeah. of it in a positive sense. Yeah. So I think the big $64,000 question is how do we respond to it well? And, and, yes. and, and that's where the science comes in. So let me, okay. let me throw out a couple of thoughts and then I, again, I want you to, to give me your response. Um, So repeated experiments with people who've undergone negative experiences prove this. They come into the lab and they describe how they feel about recent events and then later return to recall those same events. But by then, their feelings have diminished. Uh, But the negative ones fade faster than the positive ones, especially among those who've repeatedly discussed the bad experience with others. Now that's interesting, isn't it? So since the initial threat is over, they're prone to recognize the positive recovery that's taken place. And in short, the more you talk about your problems and and, and get perspective on them, you you can gain to, um, 
you can gain a better, better, better ability to overcome your anxieties. And this is why we often say that was therapeutic for me to talk about that because we were yes. processing. Now, the key is, I think, in your process, you don't have a person that just says, yeah, that was awful, wasn't it? Life sucks. You know, I mean, that's not the answer. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. But it's yeah. to say, all right, what could come from this that might make you better? Um, yeah. Well, this is really interesting because we, we've talked with a lot of teachers in this COVID-19 season about um, how much do we make this a subject of conversation, you know, the quarantine and uh, protests and all the things that have happened this summer. How much do we talk about that yeah. once students get back in the fall? And I think that the answer here is as long as you do it well, talking about it is probably one of the best things that yeah. you can do. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you know what I've really loved during this time? <clears throat> it's, it has been hard. Protests and pandemics and, and we often talk about panic attacks. Those are our three big P's going on right now. Um, yeah. I have loved hearing people who were in the 1960s demonstrations and protests who will look back 50 years ago and go, I think we're making progress. Now, they've got perspective. Now, mm-hmm. are, we, are, we, are we all the way better and perfect? No, we're not. There still needs to be racial equality steps continually taken. But how mm-hmm. cool that those people in their 70s or 80s now going, we are, I am seeing progress now. Uh, so mm-hmm. that's discussion and perspective that we need to, we need to bring to, to the next generation, I think. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Well, I know that you kind of break <clears throat> down how to have one of these conversations well. So obviously yeah. we know we need to talk about the problems we're facing, the obstacles that we're trying to overcome. But the question is, how do we talk about them? Yeah. So will you walk us through sort of your recipe for that? Yeah. So what I've been digging up recently are two ideas that we've talked about in the past uh, independently of one another but I'd like to really talk about them together because they are Mm -hmm. like the power twins. So the first one is great expectations. And I'm not talking about Charles Dickens' uh, story. I'm talking about uh, the impact of research that was done in 1968 when Robert Rosenthal and Lenore Jacobson, two psychologists, uh, published their book, The Pygmalion Pygmalion Effect in the Classroom. Uh, Now, real quick, let me give the uh, listeners right now uh, a quick summary of this research. So they begin to study um, college students experimenting with rats in a maze. And to make a long story short, uh, two groups of university students were given two groups of rats. And the faculty or the researchers said to one group of students, these are average rats. So some will make it to the end of the maze and get the cheese and, and some won't. Okay. They kind of planted an expectation in those students. Mm -hmm. The other group of students were told, we've been able to lift a strain of DNA from from, from these rats, this species of rats, and you have genius rats. I'm sure they didn't use that term, but you've got highly intelligent rats, so you should expect more of them. They're really, really good. Now, I know this sounds so funny, but after Experiment after experiment after experiment, they discovered that the university students that thought they had genius rats handled them more gently, spoke to them more kindly, uh, you, uh, actually interacted them with greater expectations like they were going to get to them. And sure enough, mm-hmm. believe it or not, the genius rats reached the cheese at the end of the maze far measurably more often than the average rats. Now, the catch here is this. There were no genius rats. 
they were both a group of average rats. They had no idea which, what the IQ was in any of these rats. Classic experiment. Yeah, it yeah. is. It really is. But what really becomes powerful is the next round of experimentation that Dr. Rosenthal did with teachers and students. And the same mm. thing was found. When faculty thought they had really good, gifted, intelligent students, even if they were a little rebellious, they thought they were really smart, those teachers just believed the best about them. They started pushing them, you know, to go further. I think you can do this, et cetera, et cetera. So this will not shock anybody. The students that were, uh, that, that were led by faculty that thought they were stronger ended up performing. They actually had IQ, uh, their IQ raised by like 10 points. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. yeah. And test scores were higher, et cetera, et cetera. And all it was was the power of expectation. Now, that stuff our listeners have probably heard. But Andrew, since these initial studies on expectations more than 50 years ago, we've discovered something very interesting. There are times when high expectations can backfire. Uh, that these are the times when they're inappropriate. Maybe we expect uh, a student, you know, that's maybe a, a C or a B student to make straight A's. Or it's that tiger mom that we've all heard about, you know, who expects her daughter to master the violin or they don't get dinner tonight, you know. And that actually happens. And this is often causing these students to just shrivel up and, and spiral down and maybe even get suicidal ideation. It's very scary when inappropriate expectations are placed on, on people. We've all, we've all heard that. So the key is, all right, how do we do this expectation in a way that brings out the best, not the worst? And I think that the answer is within every one of our reach, but it's when we add the second ingredient, the power twin that I talked about. Okay. And it's okay. great belief. So in a 2014 study, much more recently, uh, it was confirmed uh, what social psychologists hypothesized about belief. When belief is added to expectation, something magical happens. So doctors G.L. Cohen and Jay Garcia experimented with students offering feedback to them on their assignments, okay? So it started with middle school students and they did high school students. One response elicited great effort even following harsh feedback on, a, on an assignment, okay? So here was the response that they got back. And, and people have heard us say this one way, shape, or form, but I just wanna camp out on it right now. The response to, the, the feedback that was given to students that brought out the best was this. I'm giving you this feedback because I believe in you. So the word believe was actually used there. I'm giving you this feedback because I believe in you. So there was high expectation but then there was this personal touch. There was this sense of, I know you, and I know you can do this. So that's different than expectation. Um, we can have wrong expectations and just say, I, do, I demand that you do this. And that kid might go, you don't even know me. You have no idea what I can do. But this, oh my gosh. Um, Daniel Coyle has written in his books about some Ivy League schools that did similar experiments with middle school kids. And they said the effort that it brought when you express belief, uh, move the effort up a minimum of 40%, as high as 320% in students. So um, I'll, I'll, I'll stop there stuff. and I'll let you volley back, but it's just interesting when both of these are combined, something amazing happens. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and we've seen it time and again, which is why when we sort of looked at these two pieces of research and put them together, we went, 
oh wait, yeah. this is you know this is exactly what we've been looking for. But I think part of the reality of this is that both of these things have to be sincere, right? Yeah. yeah. And 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 it's so important that they come together, right? If yeah. we have high degree of belief in our kids, yeah. but not high expectations, yeah. then they're going to feel coddled. They're going to feel like. Um, we weren't really challenging them. We're not really pushing them, right? Yeah. If we have that, like you mentioned, high expectations without high belief, then you've got the tiger mom example that yes. you were talking about, yeah. or the 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 mom who's not really considering her kids' feelings. She's just plowing through, you know. And we're picking on moms here. Dads do it too, for certain. So do teachers, right? So do principals and administrators. Uh, all of us have a tendency, and the recipe is not one or the yes. other. It's yes. both, right? And I think. Tapering those two things together is really the secret. It is, yeah. So belief without expectation feels hollow. You don't really expect me to do it, even though you say you believe in me. Expectation without belief seems harsh. So it's either hollow or harsh when you just have one or the other. Yeah. And and there's something really magical. Now, you mentioned something just a minute ago, Andrew, when you talked about being sincere. So um, I want to just make a few statements. Again, I'd love for you to volley back just for the listener's benefit, because I think you've got some very wise things to say. But um, let me give you a couple of scenarios that I I think uh, happen when we're not sincere. If our leadership is unhealthy, uh, one example would be a parent who is perhaps living out their unlived life through their children, and and they push their child to perform because of their own emotional deficits. Um, It's about their own baggage, you know, That, that, that dad that wanted to play Major League Baseball but never did, but by golly, he's going to make sure his son plays, you know, plays baseball really yeah. well. Even if his son goes, yeah, Dad, I can't. Yeah. It's the Uncle Rico scenario yeah. a little bit, right? <laughs> you better refer, You better let listeners know what you're referring well, to. Well, for those who have seen Napoleon Dynamite, Uncle Rico is a character who is always remembering, yes. you know, the fourth quarter yeah. of the high school football game where if coach had just put him in, he he. He, everything could have changed, right? Yeah. And he takes out those feelings on the people around him, yeah. much like what you're talking it's about. It's exactly right. Yep. So thank you for that scientific research, Andrew. I appreciate that. For, you're welcome. You're welcome. I'm, yeah. ha- I'm always up for a cultural example. That's right. Exactly. Okay. So another scenario that would be insincere or unhealthy is a parent who doesn't want to appear to be a bad parent among their social network at the country club or whatever, and they can cause undue stress. In other words, their ego is in play. Um, it's about the family's image and I want to make sure my son does well or my daughter does well because I don't want to look bad. And again, we, nobody admits this, but Andrew, this is happening in school after school with, with moms and dads who mean well but don't realize it's their own baggage that's doing this. Mm, that's so good. Yeah. yeah. It, it, we, we see this, sadly, really, really often. Yeah, yeah, so. we do, yeah. I have said many, many times, my generation, while there's millions of wonderful examples, we, there, my generation just, some of us never overcame our own emotional stuff. And it's, we're, unfortunately, the victims are our children, even as teenagers or college students. So anyway, one last scenario I want to give real quick before we get really practical. Another unhealthy example that we want to make sure we avoid is a parent who wants their child to do what they did Uh, either gaining a 4.0 GPA in the classroom or securing a starting spot on the basketball team, they project their achievements on their child. So this is the opposite of Uncle Rico. They did make it, and now, by golly, they want their kid to do the same thing at Yale or Georgia Tech or, 
UCSD or whatever, and bless his heart, that young son or daughter just, they're going, you're, you're not being fair to the talents that I have. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I actually think this last one was the reason that we had the college admission scandal um, mm-hmm. this previous year is because we had moms and dads who said, well, I went to this school and yeah. my son or daughter doesn't have the GPA to get in. So I'm going to yeah, I'm going to find a way to to get them in. So, yeah, sadly, these things happen all too often. Well, before we go on, as I know you've got some advice for us on yeah. how to actually play this out, as well as a story of how this happened with uh, you and your son. Um, I did want to just make a quick word. I'm going to talk a little bit more about it, but actually this is one of the main themes of a new book that you just finished. In fact, it's going to come out in August, and uh, we would like for you guys to pre-order it right now if you're interested. Um, right now, it, it's called The Pandemic Population, and in fact, you can get it at pandemicpopulation.com. We made it easy for everybody. Uh, but we in it, we cover the eight strategies that can help Gen Z recover hope after the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. So um, it's all about how do we lead them through this really pivotal moment uh, that we're in. And guess what? The uh, the recipe for combining expectations and belief is a huge part of what this book is about. So if this is resonating with you right now, you might want to be on the lookout for that and even go pre-order it at pandemicpopulation.com. But I'll come back and talk a little bit more about it. But for now, I think you actually have some advice for us on how to do this well, or four observations about how to get this balance just right. So yeah, we talk about those? Absolutely. So four quick ideas, listeners, um, just for you to ponder. Uh, number one, our expectations should be matched with their potential. So make sure, unlike what we just talked about, that your, your expectations really are aligned with what you know to be true about that student's potential. Okay, that's number one. Number two, our expectations should be birthed from healthy motivation. So again, not your own baggage, not your own past that was successful or unsuccessful. It's about who they are, okay? Number three, our expectations should be combined with belief. Okay, that's the mega topic here. So belief and expectations. This is, this is the phrase perhaps that says, I'm giving you this feedback because I have high expectations of you and I know you can reach them because I believe in you, okay? There's That's the two. Great. Yep, and I then number that. four, the last one. Our expectations and beliefs are delivered through a relationship. So far too often, we as adults think we've got a good relationship with that student in the classroom, but the students tell us in some of our informal focus groups, nah, they really don't. They really don't know me, or at least the perception on the part of the student is they really don't know me. So I just wanna make Absolutely. sure I underscore be sure you're truly building relationship. Know something about their personal history. I don't mean to be freaky or weird about that, but know something beyond math if you're a yeah, math teacher. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, it actually makes me think of, I remember interviewing students who said, my teacher hates me. And yeah. it was like, your teacher doesn't hate you. Yeah. Like, they signed up to be a teacher. How could they hate you, yeah. you know? But I think the, the problem in that, in that classroom was that there wasn't a relationship. Yeah. And so when the teacher came in with high expectations and maybe even high belief, the students reacted by going, well, you don't even know me, right? You're just trying to push me really hard. You must, you must be trying to torture me or whatever the <laughs> yeah, yeah. sort of narrative that ended, ended up developing, right? But a teacher doesn't hate a student. But what happens is if a teacher doesn't have a relationship with a student, then their interactions could seem cruel or yeah. frustrating or whatever else. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely key. So we called this podcast today The Secret Weapon. 
Um, I just believe, Andrew, especially during this season of self-quarantine and the pandemic that we're in, um, it would be amazing if we all discovered this secret weapon and began to use it as we interact with the students. Um, I just think it's crucial during times of uncertainty, especially, to focus on something outside of ourselves, like we started with, and then to lead our students with both expectations and belief. So this is the part of the student. There's something on the part of the students they need to do, and there's something on the part of us that we need to do. Uh, and Andrew, you just mentioned a minute ago, my son. Let me, let me kind of close with a quick story yeah, of how this played out with my son, Jonathan. So um, when my son was born, like most, like not most, millions of dads, I just assumed he was gonna be just like me. And that meant he loved sports. We're gonna play basketball, baseball, football, you know, whatever sports in season, we're gonna watch it, we're gonna do it, you know, that sort of thing. I imagined playing ball with him. I imagined cheering for his little league team when he played ball. Uh, so as a young boy, as we were interacting, I saw Jonathan did wanna play baseball. But when he was really young, let's say five years old, he and I would go outside in the backyard and play. But I started noticing it just wasn't natural for him. I mean, Andrew, I'd have to stand so close to pitch the ball to him so he could hit it. I could almost reach out and touch it. I mean, I, I, yeah, it was just pretty, it just wasn't his natural gift. Now he has a the lot hand of hand-eye coordination yeah, was yeah. not quite, yeah, there. <clears throat> exactly, yeah. So, and that's okay. Yeah, and so there was a time a little bit later, he said, Dad, I think I wanna play Little League Baseball. I was a little bit concerned because I knew I'd had former experiences, but I said, well, all right, if you wanna do that, I, I wanna coach. <clears throat> so a neighbor friend and I co-coached co the, the team, and I still remember to this day, Jonathan out in left field, probably in more ways than one, out in left field. And, you know, he was staring at his baseball mitt and watching butterflies, and I could just tell, oh, my gosh, he, he said he wants to play this game, but he really isn't interested. And so yeah. we ended up sitting down, and um, it was, this was a little emotional, but as we interacted, he was probably seven years old. But I, really, I realized at that point, the reason he said he wanted to learn baseball and play Little League Baseball was because he thought I expected that of him. And I thought, yeah. oh my gosh, bless his heart. He's just trying to do what he thinks dad wants him to do. And, um, and of course I did deep down, but that was not enough to impose that on my son. And so we started talking, I said, Jonathan, if you don't want to, I don't want you to. I want you to find what you really love. And Andrew, it was not long after that. I mean, he was still seven years old. He entered a community theater program and he was brilliant. He's a thespian, not a ball player. He was yeah. great on the stage. Does this sound, I mean, he loved being on the stage. Does this sound familiar to you? So, uh, <laughs> so he did get something from his oh, dad after. Yeah, after all, that's right. So. I loved cheering for him at plays. School plays were amazing. Community theater plays were amazing. In fact, I had someone say, well, isn't that more boring than going to a ball game? Something different happens in ball games. I said, oh, you don't understand school plays. Something different happens every time. <laughs> there are very unplanned activities <laughs> happening on that stage, yeah. Absolutely. So bottom line, uh, here's the bottom line. Uh, once I got my focus adjusted, I could add belief to expectations and be sincere. I, I not only expected him to do well, I believed he could do well with school plays rather than baseball. But once he got his focus right, that his gifts are to be used for the benefit of others, not just himself, that was the magical, that was the magical formula, I think, that just 
caused him to do well. And he's in the world of entertainment out in L.A. Uh, so, I mean, it's just amazing how it began. Thank God I did not expect him to play third base for the Boston Red Sox, or we'd all be in trouble right now. <laughs> Especially the Boston Red Sox. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Here, here's the thing I would say about Jonathan, though, is from the moment I met him a few years ago, uh, he was a guy who came off as... Uh, giving away his gifts yeah. to help others, whether it was volunteering for community kids theater or uh, even now, I mean, the, yeah. he's in the the film industry yeah. because he wants to have a positive effect on yeah, it, right? That's exactly so right. So you're you've also raised a son who doesn't just have gifts that are different from maybe the gifts that you had, but you've also trained him to be able to give those gifts away, and I think that's probably helping him a lot during this coronavirus season, like it's helping so many young people who are making this moment about others and not themselves. Yeah, yeah. So that's my hope. That's good. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. I know as you and I were talking, one of the things that we talked about is this weapon, this weapon is a secret weapon, but it really shouldn't be, right? <laughs> that's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. I would love to just encourage everybody listening, don't make this a secret weapon, right? Um, tell people about it. Encourage your friends and family to find this combination of expectations and belief and give it as a gift to the, yeah. the next generation because they need this now more than ever. So, um, Tim, thank you so much for leading us through this. I mentioned uh, earlier in the podcast about this new book that's coming out. It'll be a shorter book, but the design of it actually, you know, just over 100 pages, the design of it was to be very helpful and very topical. Yeah. Uh, what we, really the challenge that we faced was uh, we are looking at a generation of kids, in particular, sort of the upper end of Generation Z, so the 16 yeah. to 21 year olds, yeah. Yeah. Uh, 22 year olds, who really just had their whole world upended, right? Mm -hmm. uh, now, we all had our whole world upended, yeah. but if you were planning on going to college, you were planning on attending a graduation ceremony, you were planning on getting an internship or your first job, uh, those things were just pulled out from under you. Um, and whereas you and I got to have those experiences as a young 20-something, um, a lot of these kids are not. And so the question remains, how do we lead a generation of kids who we're now calling the pandemic population? I've heard other people call them coronials, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, how do we help them navigate this reality? And what's really cool is, as a part of writing this book, uh, you and I went back and we explored uh, how did adults lead the generation of kids who grew up during the Great Depression. Yeah. Um, and, and there's actually a whole lot of parallels, both in the challenges that were faced and also the way that kids were led. Uh, and there was some great secrets, I think, that you uncovered there as far as what, what led those kids to walk away with a, a mindset of gratitude rather than um, you know, being stressed out or anxious or some yeah. of those other things. So the pandemic population is coming out very soon. We'd love for you to pre-order it. Go to pandemicpopulation.com. I think it's going to be extremely topical and very helpful. Whether you're a parent, teacher, coach, youth worker, whatever uh, environment that you're in, if you engage with the next generation at all, especially those kids that are you know, 16, 17, yeah. up to 22 and 23, this is going to be a really helpful resource for you to engage with them. Do you want to add something to that? Well, I just was thinking, we've made this short, so it's very digestible, and we priced it affordable. This might be great for an entire faculty to get just, yeah. here's, some, here's some eight ideas you can, you can use as you lead these kids when they go back to school in the fall. Yeah. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. So again, the title of the book is Pandemic, The Pandemic Population, Eight Strategies to Help Gen Z Rediscover Hope. After the coronavirus, we know that's something 
that's in short supply today. So, Tim, thank you again for sharing with us. Uh, as always, if you guys would rate the podcast, give us five stars on iTunes or wherever you uh, listen to podcasts. That helps get the word out about what we're doing here. Follow us on social media. Um, we're at Growing Leaders and at Tim Elmore pretty much everywhere you are. We're still not on TikTok yet. We're working on it. Um, uh, email us if you've got ideas for the podcast, uh, people you want us to interview, topics you want us to address. The email is podcast at growingleaders.com. We love getting those from you. And then lastly, if you would just do us a favor, share this podcast with a friend. If you found it helpful, um, think of one or two people in your community who, who you think might need this and shoot it over to them. We really just want this, like I said, we want this message not to be a secret, but to actually be really well known, this strategy for leading the next generation. So um, thank you guys again for being here. Th- Tim, thank you for your advice. We'll see you next time. Woo!